Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to a Business Builder Show, where we feature champions in their respective industries from all over the planet. Our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to find out why policyholders should retain insurance coverage Savvy Council, and David Gauntlet will walk us through why that is the case. Now, he's an industry veteran, author, and policyholder advocate with an involvement in president-setting cases with over 38 years practicing as an attorney. He's responsible for creating groundbreaking case law in securing coverage in a variety of intellectual property, antitrust, false advertising, and employment cases nationwide. He's authored a couple of books in the meantime, Insurance Coverage of Intellectual Property Assets. He's in a second edition, an attorney handbook for insurance coverage and intellectual property disputes, also second edition, as well as numerous other publications addressing insurance coverage issues. And as you'll find out, there are plenty of those going on. David, who exactly do you serve? Well, we typically serve a range of businesses. I've had about 10% of the Fortune 500 as clients over the years, but I've represented a number of mid-cat companies and smaller companies. And frankly, the legal technology we create for a larger client trickles down to benefit the smaller clients because they get the benefits that flow from the in-depth analysis we get to do in those major matters. And we have an internal resource called the grid, which is basically 5,000 letters, briefs, and memos that is carefully orchestrated like a Westlaw system with all the things that they don't do in the gaps filled in from our case experience. And we find that very useful to allow our team to bring the expertise cumulatively of our organization to the needs of clients. David, I'm, I'm imagining there's some sort of a common causality in the problems that people end up having that you solve for them. And so what are the what are the common denominators that you see all the time? Well, the more typical case is when I'm called by an outside intellectual property litigator and they have asked the insurance carrier to provide a defense in an ongoing lawsuit and the carrier has denied that defense. Sometimes that defense request is not made right away. Sometimes it's made later in the day, right as the case is pending close to settlement. We have four pending, pending cases in New York right now where that pending activity was the actual negotiation of settlements. And under New York law, we were able to argue that they may still be on the hook, not only for the settlement, but all fees from the date of the filing of the suit based on some unique contours of New York law that haven't been fully exploited by the case law to date. So what I'd like to do next, my next two questions, really about how you, you know, leave the competition, so to speak, in the dust, David. So maybe I'm thinking maybe if you can recall a case study that you could walk us through, and here's the situation, here's the problem, here's what we did, here's the resolution that would help us understand how you go about helping clients. Well, one that we were successful on in 2020, we had a case for a software company that was accused of conduct 
that created liability for asserted trademark infringement claims, as well as forms of unfair competition and buried claims of implicit disparagement. When I say buried claims, a lot of times the labels of causes of action are not where you stop when you look at coverage opportunities. That's a big opportunity you know, missing in a lot of analysis that I see when I'm brought in by other counsel. So you have to look at the facts and those facts can be in variety of different claims like tortious interference can nest within it, disparagement claims. The problem there was that the carrier travelers had a very problematic exclusion that basically said as they read it, if you have any claim for an intellectual property asserted right, even though you might have coverage, say in this instance, for implicit disparagement, that won't get you any defense benefits because it's like typhoid Mary. The mere presence of an IP claim eliminates any coverage. Now, we had a more interesting variation on that problem because our client was a plaintiff. They did initially sue for any IP violations. Counterclaim came back to them for covered claims of disparagement. And then after that, they prosecuted a trade secret claim. The district court said, well, the instant you started prosecuting the claim for trade secret misappropriation, you lost all policy benefits because you were there was an IP claim in the suit. And our point was, well, we weren't a defendant in that situation. We were not even a counter defendant in that situation because the IP claims were by us. They were to vindicate our IP rights. And so by that logic, you'd never be able to bring rights to protect yourself as an insured as part of defensive activity. The district court said, no, it says right here, any suit in any suit, and everybody knows that a counterclaim is part of a suit, and that counts. I'm just reading it as any lawyer would. Ninth Circuit said, are you out of your mind? This is nothing any lay person would ever understand. And the fact that a suit would include prosecution activity, that doesn't fly. And they reversed it unanimously. And they went on to do something very important. They said, and this language that's very broad in the exclusion, this arising out of language, we're going to interpret narrowly because it's in an exclusion. I've got telegrams from all over the country when that happened, because that's been one of the trickiest issues to get the words arising out of narrowly read because they're in an exclusion. And there are still cases that I see today where that case, the Ninth Circuit case, unpublished, but still in you know federal appendix 2020, my choice against travelers, my choice software, is cited, not cited, because folks don't realize the court did that. And they said, What's going on now is inconsistent with how the California Supreme Court would do it. So I don't care about published court of appeal decisions and a lot of district court opinions because they've missed the boat about what the Supreme Court would do. So that's not a non-typical situation where we've had to push the envelope and make new law. And then on remand, we were able to go back to the district judge and point out that the carrier said that there's this doctrine to prove bad faith that requires a genuine dispute. That's what you have to show. And I said, no, that's only in a first party claim. It's a lawsuit against the insured. The doctrine is reasonableness. You show unreasonable conduct, the insurer is liable for bad faith. And that case is now consistent with a lot of other cases that have come down. But again, if you look at a lot of briefs that I see, a lot of folks take the carrier's word for it that the genuine dispute doctrine applies to liability cases. So they're undersourcing the law to assist 
their clients. And so we think that our knowledge and our in-depth analysis brings to the table a more uh, meaningful arsenal of weapons that we can use to help our clients. I like that. That was a that was a very a very clear oh, 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 that case study. So let's go a little deeper, though. I know that you're in a relatively narrow niche, I think, in event, but you've got some competitors. So uh, how are you different, David? You and your firm from your competitors out there? Well, there's some very fine policyholder recovery firms nationally. They tend to be part of bigger firms. And frankly, the price point of those firms is probably twice ours because our blended rate is well below the, the rates of their junior partner. And we think that's important for midsize and smaller businesses to have a resource like us with our level of knowledge. Also, a lot of those bigger firms don't have the index knowledge, the writing exposure, and the of attitude that we have to solve problems no matter what it takes to get the job done. They have so much at stake for those bigger corporate clients, they may be a little more conservative in the way they take on those matters. So let's kind of move on and talk about your, your firm and walk us through maybe some milestones, you know, of how, you know, where you came from, how you put it together, how you went about attracting employees to your firm. Kind of give us the story. Okay. Well, I graduated from Berkeley with law, which is called was called Bolt Hall at the time in 1979. And I started my first um, employment at Paul Hastings in their Los Angeles office. And I, I did a rotation in a variety of places, but I ended up in employment because that was a strong department, very litigation exposed, some really great talent there. And I learned basically uh, to do traditional employment, but also things like sex discrimination that were starting to hit things at that point. And then from there, I noticed that folks were not making partner at some of the big firms as readily as one would hope, given the investment. I found a escapee from another firm, Alan Matkins, who started his own partnership. He enjoyed with myself. And uh, we started doing a lot of creative work, seeking coverage in a variety of different areas. DNO officer liability cases were prevalent at that time. And then we were offered a patent infringement coverage case. And I noted that nobody had ever done that before. And I thought, well, I'll just write letters after the fifth one, Aetna agreed to defend. After a quarter million dollars in defense fees, they brought a deck action. I returned the favor and I got a favorable ruling from Judge Stotler, a fine jurist, but an appointee of President Reagan and a conservative judge in many ways, but she found coverage for this patent case. So it struck me, one, it was the first time in the country. Second, it was a conservative judge. Third, the cases were not being tendered typically because everybody knew there was no coverage for patent lawsuits. And so I presumed at that point that the emperor had no clothes and the rest of my practice proceeded with that viewpoint. And I moved on to getting other kinds of IP claims, antitrust counterclaims, false advertising coverage cases, as well as circling back to employment coverage cases, as that's an area that I've always had an interest in from my early practice experience. And did it around the country because I found that no, folks were not really attentive to these issues and that there was a lot of unfixed law so I could help make it by being out there and making sure I shaped it in the way I wanted. And I did a lot of work in New York because I thought that was an important jurisdiction and some of my early cases were there. So how about, how, how did you go about attracting other attorneys and staff to the firm over the years? 
Well, I liked the fact I was getting decent clients. I remember giving a speech in Washington, D.C. in the really early, late 1980s. And uh, there was somebody who was on the other side of it. And after the speech, three business cards showed up on my inbox, one from BI, another from Grumman Corporation, the third ComSat Corporation. And I just assumed you gave speeches to important audiences and big companies hired you to beat up the end carriers. Turns out it's a little more difficult than that. But over time, that helped attract the talent that we needed. If you had important work, you were able to find folks that wanted to assist. Curious about how you you organize yourself. Or is everybody in the go to the work in the same office? Is it you got some remote people? Do you have people? Well, since 2020, we realized that the office was a nice place to store books and files, but we really didn't need it. And so we've been remote practically since then. And I have talent in Ohio, in New Mexico, as well as various places in California, because we really don't need an office. Our work is very law-driven. It tends to be complaints, letters, motions for summary judgments, appeals. And uh, often the facts in our case will be seven words and a complaint. And there really isn't a lot we need to do to discuss the factual specifics. So the traditional reasons for having a large law firm office with all the places you have those facts and hard copies didn't apply. And once we decided we could go remote electronic, that was the obvious play. And it helps keep the price point down too. I, I was just thinking the same thing. I've got several clients of of, of mine that have made those kinds of decisions and the rent and the, all the associated, if you will, cost to the employees of commuting and parking and so forth and so on, it can, it can remount up fast. And if, it, if it's able to be converted into cost savings for the client, all the better. So what's yeah. holding you back right now, do you think? Oh, it's still hard to get the level of talent I would like to bring on board. I just found someone who I think is very solid, who's practiced for a decade. And I actually give exams to my people. And it's not so much their answers, but how we discuss how they got where they got that's of interest, because I want to meet their mind. And once I have that experience, I find the likelihood that it's a good candidate for our practice is higher. So I've asked you, let's see, seven or eight questions, but I'm thinking there's probably a question that I haven't thought of. So what is that question that you typically get asked or you should be asked that would really give great value to our listeners, David? Well, I'm a contract lawyer and the contracts I deal with is the most widely disseminated contract in the world. It's called an insurance policy. And those insurance policies are often sourced by insurance brokers. It's important that you make sure your insurance broker is helping you choose the better policies available and make them not just a order taker at McDonald's, but in fact, doing some very thorough review and that you both know that's what's going on. I help people actually by backing up broker expertise, by assisting them by policies. I did that about a decade ago, as I realized it was important. I'll give you an example. There's a recent case in 2022 that found a little outside my core area, but things that I do as well, that a warranty of habitability coverage was vitiated by an exclusion. And the exclusion added a paragraph like the one I earlier mentioned to you, that if there were any basis for non-coverage, 
there was no duty to defend the rest of the case. That's a big sea change in the way coverage works because it's envisioned that if you have any claim, the entirety of the suit is covered. To change that rule without telling the insured specifically that that right has been taken away is inconsistent with California Supreme Court law precedent, which this court of appeal decision didn't address. I think it could be attacked, but in the interim, let's get better policies out there and watch the endorsements. Read your policies backwards because that's where they take it all away. Read them backwards. That's fantastic. I like that. Okay, so thanks, David. I appreciate it very much. I know this is a is a, a potentially extremely expensive area to be involved with from a client standpoint. So I'm glad that you and your firm exist to be able to help people out when they get into a jam like the ones you've described. So thanks again, everybody. Now, in closing, let's focus on the single fact that our businesses do not become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner first learning and then applying a proven combination of having the right core strategy for growth, of using a system of management to execute that strategy, and number three, leveraging high-performance teams. Now, that team idea includes outside resources like David right here listening uh, that you're listening to right now. Now, you can get your hands on the core components of the of what I just articulated, just go to getbillsgift.com and you'll have your hands on that three-part strategy for growing your business. So thanks for listening, David. Thanks for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. You're welcome.